The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Uh, We were back in the second verse of Genesis, and I had pointed out Karl Barth's interpretation of this verse, the reason being that this sort of an interpretation underlies a great deal that is being said about Genesis today. Barth maintains, you see, that the verse does not describe a condition in which the earth was once found but it is rather a condition of sin, of apostasy, of rebellion, and so on, a condition into which the earth can recede again. Now, that is obviously not an exposition of the text. That is not what the verse means, but that is the imposition upon the text of a certain philosophical position which is very widespread today. And that undergirds the idea that the Hebrews, when they wanted to speak about creation, apparently could not speak in straightforward language, just as you and I would do, but had to employ the concept of a myth. Now, I have never understood why that limitation had to be imposed upon the Hebrews. If they could not speak of creation in straightforward language, but were forced to employ the concept of myth, How is it that they can speak about God without using the concept of myth? How can they speak about atonement and sin and so on without using the concept of myth? All of the mysteries of our Christian faith are mysteries, and if we cannot speak about them in straightforward language, can we ever really be sure that we understand them at all? Now, I cannot agree with this view, of course. There is no reason why... Hebrews could not speak about creation in straightforward language. Genesis does just that. And I think we are faced here, you see, with the imposition of a new theology or philosophy upon the Bible. I hold an entirely different view of history from that which undergirds Barth's view. According to him, this is unhistorical writing of history, of Geschichte, and it cannot be treated as relating what actually transpired. It seems to me that our concept of history must be derived from the scriptures themselves. That is historical which actually took place, whether you and I can control it or not. It is historical not because some document remains to tell us that it took place, such as Caesar's Gallic Wars, telling us about his incursions, but it is historical if it ever did take place. Now, how do we know that the events recorded in the first chapter of Genesis actually took place? Well, our answer is that we simply have to regard that chapter as revealed scripture. Uh, God, of course, is the only one who can tell us about the creation. And the Christian believes that God has spoken on this subject. In other words, we are coming face to face with a question of special divine revelation. 
That is really the question that is involved today. Uh, is there such a thing as special divine revelation? Now the Bible says he made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. It is on the one hand the question of a revelation from God or it is simply the gropings of the Hebrew nation and to the presentation of the best that they could find. Now I feel that the Christian position, the position which the Bible compels us to accept, is that this is a revelation from God. God has told us about the creation, and we believe that it is historical, that is, that it actually took place because God has so spoken. Now that involves, of course, a proper view of God. It involves what I would call the Christian theistic position. We believe in God. <coughs> we recite the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, and we mean that. On the modern viewpoint, you cannot believe in such a God. But on the viewpoint of the Bible itself, that is the only God in whom we can believe. And so I am considering Genesis as historical, as a revelation from God. We are told that the second verse of Genesis is a little treasure house of mythological statements. The earth was without form and void. Those two words in the Hebrew are somewhat similar sounding, tohu vohu, and the Phoenicians have, or some people at least, have preserved the concept of a god ba'u, uh, which is thought to be related to this, Others find that the concept of the abyss, the original primeval waters, suggests that the, there are the powers of evil. In all of the creation accounts of antiquity, the God has had to overcome the powers of evil. The chaotic waters represent the evil powers. And in the Babylonian account, you have the God overcoming Tiamat, the power of evil. It is said that there are reflections upon that in the Bible also. <coughs> but in the second verse of Genesis, this word abyss, pronounced to home in the Hebrew, simply refers to the primeval ocean. The picture which I get is that the earth at that time was covered with water. There was a vast primeval deep. There was nothing evil about it. It was simply the condition in which things were. Over this deep there was darkness. The darkness again is not theologically evil, as most commentators say, for right away God assigns a sphere to the darkness in distinction from the light. And then again when we read the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, uh, the Phoenicians have the concept of a world egg, which goes back to this, the egg that split open, and from that the heavens and earth were formed. Now, there are those who tell us that we should translate this, a mighty wind was rushing over the waters, but I believe that the participle that is used here excludes that translation. It is to be translated hovering, and the picture is that of the Spirit of God hovering over all things as a bird hovers over its nest so that the Spirit of God is holding all things in control. There is no reason whatever 
why we should assume that the condition described in the second verse of Genesis was evil, why we should think that it was out of God's control, that he was in any sense displeased with what is there presented. Rather, it is a picture of a threefold conditioning condition existing from the point of absolute creation until God says, let there be light. <coughs> now, the question arises, what then is the relationship between the first chapter of Genesis and these various cosmogenies? There are many who tell us that the uh, Genesis account is simply a purified account which is the same as that that the Babylonians had. Uh, when the Babylonian tab uh, tablets were first discovered in the last century, a book was published called The Babylonian Genesis, in which it was made very clear that Genesis was simply taken over from the Babylonians, and the thought was that the Hebrew priests had brought these ideas from Babylon and had written them down in Genesis 1. Now the view is a bit more refined, and these ideas, as I said this morning, are thought to have come into Israel through the Canaanites. Well, I believe that all those uh, attempts at a comparison are mistaken. If God is the creator, and if things occurred as he tells us in the first chapter of Genesis, then God would have revealed that truth to man very early. Man would have handed that truth down to his descendants. And after the flood, that truth would have been passed on to those who were not in the line of promise, as well as to those who were in the line of promise. Now you can well understand that among unbelievers the truth would have been corrupted with superstition. After all, even today you know how rumors spread. Oral tradition is not today a very reliable thing, and it hasn't always been. And so among those who did not believe in the true God, the truth would have been corrupted, and superstitious elements would have been introduced. And that is why in the Babylonian account we find some things that are true. The account is not wholly false. There are some glimpses in there that are true. And that is also the case with other cosmogenies. There are elements of truth that have been preserved, and I believe this explains the reason for that. Throughout the whole world, there are cosmogenies that come from different people. And among those cosmogenies, in those cosmogenies, there are statements and views which in themselves are true to fact. There has just been published a book by Eliade in which he discusses this very question, speaking of the cosmogenies of the Polynesians and the Hawaiians and others and so on, and comparing them with some of the cosmogenies that came from the ancient Near East. And in all of these, there are certain elements which in themselves are true. They are reflections upon the truth which God originally revealed to mankind. Now, I believe that God chose someone to write down this material. It may have existed in written form and even in oral tradition before this time, but I believe that God used Moses to write it down and that Moses wrote as an inspired penman and was guided from error, pre prevented from error in his writing so that the first chapter of Genesis is a revelation from God and it towers high above 
any other cosmogony that comes from the ancient world. We are therefore to read it in the belief that what it relates unto us is the truth. Now, going back to it then, we find in this second verse of Genesis three circumstantial clauses. And here I am talking about grammar again. (coughs) A circumstantial clause or a nominal clause in Hebrew is simply a clause that describes a condition. It does not contain action. A verbal clause contains action. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. That is a verbal clause because there is action therein. The three following sentences, however, are simply descriptive. They do not contain action. The earth was desolation and waste. Darkness was upon the face of the abyss. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Those are descriptive clauses. Now they modify a main verb, and grammatically that main verb is given to us in the third verse, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now this is the first of God's creative acts in bringing the unformed universe into the condition in which we find it today. Light is the foundation of all that follows. And you may have wondered why the light is mentioned without the sun. There was a time when men said that this was a, an error, a scientific error in the first chapter of Genesis, that it mentioned light before it mentioned the sun. Now, I don't think men speak that way anymore. It is seen that this is deliberate. It is to show men that light comes from God and that God is to be worshipped and not the sun. The ancient world was a sun-worshipping world. The Egyptian hieroglyphics speak of the god Ra, uh, who is the sun god. The Hittites speak of a man dying, that is, he becomes a sun. The concept of the sun is very prominent in the ancient Near East. It was understandable that sinful man in that Near East where the sun was shining for so great a part of the day would lift up his eyes and see the sun there in the sky and worship that as a god, and that's what he did. And now that we may understand that light, the foundation for all of life, is the gift of God and not of the sun, the light is mentioned before the sun. Now what the relationship of this light was to the sun, I'm going to leave for a few minutes and come back to that as we discuss the work of the fourth day. At any rate, it is clear that there may be light that does not come from the sun. And I don't know that anybody says that this is an error any longer. It's also very interesting to notice that in the cosmogonies of antiquity, light is mentioned also before the sun god is created. It's a very interesting point to notice. But now another question. God said, let there be light. (coughs) What does that mean? Speech in itself is psychical, but the organs of speech are physical. That is, we need the mouth, the tongue, the lips, the teeth, and so on in order to speak. And yet speech itself is not necessarily physical. In a dream we speak, do we not? And that is speech, yet it is not ordinary speech. 
so that we need not conceive of this as a crude anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphic means in the form of man. Not at all. I think we must remember, on the other hand, that more is involved here than a mere anthropomorphism. Now, God is infinite. And we cannot circumscribe God, and we are finite. And when we speak of God, we can only speak from the standpoint of a finite creature. Hence, all of our thoughts about God, though they may be true, are nevertheless the thoughts of limited human beings. We cannot comprehend God as he is in himself. The incomprehensibility of God is a fundamental Christian doctrine. We can only think the thoughts of God which he has revealed unto us. We cannot grasp him as he is. And so we speak of God using human language. And we say God said. That does not mean that he spoke in Hebrew. It does not mean that he even uttered sound. I cannot say positively what it does mean. But I think that it does mean that there is a genuine divine speech. That human speech is derivatory of divine speech. That that is part of our being in the image of God. That as God speaks, we can speak. But that there is more involved here than a mere anthropomorphism which suggests that God wills the existence of life seems to be proved by 2 Corinthians 4, 6 where Paul says <coughs> that God having said light from darkness shines hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now the King James renders it but God who caused the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts. But the original Greek would read, But God having said, Light from darkness shine forth has shined in our hearts. In other words, just as God has shined in our hearts with the light of regeneration, so also God said, Let there be light. Let the light shine forth from the darkness. So there is a genuine, human, uh, genuine divine speech. And God expresses the thought, Let light be, Yehior. And light was, Vayahior. And it was so. Thus rapidly and succinctly the creation of light is stated. And God saw the light, he told, that it was good. Now this is the first place in the chapter. It is the only place in the chapter apart from verse 31 where an object is used. God saw the light that it was good. In verse 31 we read, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold it was very good. In between, however, we simply have the statement, and God saw that it was good with no object being mentioned. Thus you have a contrast between the condition of chaos in verse 2 and the cosmos given to us in verse 31. It is then, I say, the creation of light which is the first step in the removal of the condition of chaos. And step by step God is preparing the world 
so that man may dwell upon it. God divides the light from the darkness. Now notice, my friends, the word day is used in verse 5 in two different senses. First, it distinguishes the period of light from the period of darkness. Secondly, it includes both the period of light and the period of darkness. And the same Hebrew word yom is used in both instances. In the second chapter of Genesis, you have that word yom used in a third sense. In the day of the Lord God making earth and heaven which we might paraphrase as at the time when the Lord God made earth and heaven. And then you have the phrase used in a different sense also, in the latter day, or in that day, where it refers to a great period of time. Now, one question that Christians like to talk about is the length of these days. And it's, it's not too profitable for the simple reason that God has not revealed sufficient for us to say very much about it. The word yom is about the same as our English word day, and it is capable of a number of connotations. In itself, the use of the word doesn't prove anything. But I think there are some uh, matters that we may point out. The first three days are not solar days such as we now know. The sun, moon, and stars were not in existence, at least in the form in which they are now present. That I think we are compelled to acknowledge. And the work of the third day seems to suggest that there was some process and that what, what took place took place in a period longer than 24 hours. Now, I do believe that the framework that is given here is that of six days followed by a seventh. I cannot accept the so-called framework hypothesis which maintains that there are six pictures of creation and that they sustain no chronological relationship one to another. That's a very easy way out of the difficulty. But I do not believe you can support that. Chronology is emphasized day one, day two, climaxing with the sixth day. And furthermore, there is progress in the order of creation. Now this is the point perhaps at which to bring up the question that troubles all of us. I just said I'd bring up the question. I didn't say anything about an answer. But I'm going to bring up the question. How old is the earth? And how old is man? Well now... It's almost universally taught that man is millions of years old and the earth is millions of years old. The Bible simply does not speak on the subject of the antiquity of man, that is, the date. And if it should be proved and could be proved that some of these figures that are being used are correct, I don't see that that affects what is stated in the first chapter of Genesis. On the other hand, most of this scientific work is based upon the theory of uniformitarianism. That is, that what is true now has always been true. But if you believe in miracles, 
then there has been an intrusion of the supernatural. And I do not think we can prove the antiquity of the earth or prove the other position. So I don't see how anybody can say that Genesis is in error at this point. We have to remember that there is a great deal that we do not know. And even the man who has not had technical scientific training must realize that scientists operate upon certain presuppositions and principles. And we have to come back to the fact that they do not come to grips with the basic question of origin. Genesis alone does that. Now I'll come back to these questions, but let us go on through the chapter a bit. In the second day a firmament is created, which means simply an expanse. It is not a material substance, but it is simply a separation of the waters that adhere to the earth and what is beyond, and more than that we cannot say. And then on the work of the third day, we find that the seas are formed and the uh, grass, herbs, and fruit trees grow. Now let's look at that for a moment. If I understand this aright, the beginning of the third day would show that the earth is covered with water. On that third day, the oceans are formed and the dry land appears. And the word that is used, Yabasha, means that which is really dry, not mud and ooze, but actual dry land such as fruit trees can grow in. Now think of what is involved. Are we to assume that on this third day the earth emerged from the waters as a perfect sphere, smooth like a tennis ball? If the earth has been covered with water, and that is what the Genesis seems to teach, would that water not affect the earth so that in the formation of the seas there would be a hollowing out process and there would also be the erection of many of the mountains? That in itself, you see, might explain many of the phenomena that are present. Now another point. Genesis mentions only those things which are necessary for man's existence. It is silent about a great many other things. For example, it mentions the grass, herbs, and fruit trees. But we know that that does not exhaust the category of flora. We know that there are many other plants that grow that are not mentioned here. Furthermore, it would seem that pollinization is necessary for the fruit trees. But nothing is said about that. Genesis is silent on many of these questions. Later there is mention of the fish that man is to rule over. But it may very well be that God had filled the seas with life even at before this time. And in this emergence of the earth from under the waters, in the formation of the seas and the mountains and valleys and so on, that fossil deposits were made at that very time. Now, my friends, this is a question we have got to face, all of us. Modern science, and especially popularizations of scientific works, are silent on the question of origin. They assume that the material of the earth was always present. 
And if you adopt what they popularly call the Big Bang Theory, that is simply that the material of this earth came into being or burst forth in a great explosion, the sun and moon and other bodies being involved in that also. But they do not come to grips with the origin of that material. And this is where Christianity has every right to challenge modern thought. Life magazine published a very interesting book some time ago called The Universe. A very useful and worthwhile book, but not one serious word in it on the question of origin. Oh yes, they talk about the origin of the earth. But I am talking about the creation of the original material. That is ignored in scientific study. They tell us that is not for the scientists. That is in the realm of faith or for religion or something. Not at all. That is for every man to face up to. If there is a beginning, a genuine creation, then we all have this problem to face. And why may it not have been that as the earth emerged from the water, that much of this work of erosion was done at that time? Think about that. It is quite possible that that could be the case. If there is a beginning, a genuine creation, then we all have this problem to face. And why may it not have been that as the earth emerged from the water, that much of this work of erosion was done at that time? Think about that. It is quite possible that that could be the case. And then the dry land responds to the command of God and sends forth grass, herbs, and fruit trees. Now, there has been a progression up to this point. You will note that what God has created up until this point has been either inanimate, that is, not organic, without what we call life, or it has been animate and stationary, such as the grass, herbs, and fruit trees. It cannot, they cannot move about. They have life within them. They are organic, but they are stationary. There has been that progress. Now we come to the work of the fourth day. And here is the place where science and Genesis are said to conflict. The sun and moon and stars are brought into existence. Now there are those who tell us that the Hebrew word that is used here, asah, simply means that God made them to appear. Evangelicals say that very often. That is found in the new edition of the Schofield Bible. Uh, that would be a very intriguing theory, but that is not the meaning of the Hebrew word. And I think evangelicals never gain anything for their cause by trying to force language to say what it doesn't say. The verb that is used here is simply asah and nafan. And if we take those words just as they are, why, I think we see an answer. There is given unto us so far in Genesis a history of the development of the world. Why may not there not have been a parallel development of the other heavenly bodies? In the first verse we read, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And I think that means just what it says. It doesn't say God created the earth. It says the heavens and the earth. 
And why may not it mean just that? There may have been a parallel development of other bodies as well as of that of the earth. Now, on the fourth day, these other bodies are made the sun, moon, and stars. It does not mean they are created out of nothing. The material was already there. It could even be that the light that came to the earth up to this time came from one of these bodies that now is said to be the sun. I think what the fourth day means is that God then constituted the universe as we now know it. And that would be so whether it is an expanding universe or not. If you take it that way, it seems to me that we have removed a great deal of difficulty. Genesis concentrates upon this earth. It discusses other matters only in so far as they have to do with this earth and with man dwelling upon this earth. If we remember that, my friends, we will see that we have no right to demand of Genesis what it doesn't claim to give us. And notice how wonderfully succinct it is, how it tells us these things in so few words and yet says so much. Now, the objection that is raised is that this is geocentric. Geocentric simply means that which puts the earth at the center of things. And there's a partial truth in that objection. Genesis is geocentric. But there are two ways in which it might be geocentric. It might be geocentric in teaching something that was not in accordance with the facts. It might maintain, you see, that the earth is the physical center of the universe and that the sun does actually rise and revolve about the earth. It doesn't do that. If you will read carefully what Genesis says, you will see there is not one word in there that is contrary to fact. It is geocentric in another sense, in that it is discussing everything else from the standpoint of this earth. And my friends, we're all geocentric in that sense. We can't help ourselves. You talk about outer space. And that's rather a modern term, is it not? Outer space, well, outer from what? What is the standard you're using for judging when you speak of outer space? It's this earth, is it not? But the most advanced scientists of today talk about outer space. What do we do? Shall we tell them they're geocentric so we aren't going to listen to them? That's the way people speak about the Bible. Or we speak about sending up an astronaut. When I was in Japan and looked up, which direction was I looking? What was up and what was down? What are you and I doing? Are we looking up now or looking down? Who's to say? We can't even be geocentric about this. But you see, we can't help ourselves. How else can we talk? And when Paul says, let not the sun go down on your wrath, that's not an error in the Bible. What do you want Paul to say? Do you want him to go into a technical discussion of the matter? If you did that, people would forget all about the question of wrath, which, by the way, is the important thing in that verse. That is not an error. That's the only way we can speak. And Genesis is geocentric in that sense. Now, it simply says that the great luminary, the great light bearer, does rule the day and the night and the seasons and years and so on. And that's true. The 
the sun and the moon may have many other functions, but they do serve this earth. And that we need to remember. What Genesis says is perfectly true to fact. Nobody can maintain that there is any error here in the first chapter of Genesis. Now, I know there are many things we cannot understand, but it is wrong to impute to the chapter more than it claims to give to it. And then when we go on from this particular point, we notice that there is a development, a progression in the order of statement. Now again the verb bara is used. God creates the great sea monsters, the birds, and the things that creep. And not only is the verb bara used, but a blessing is pronounced upon them and the work of the fifth day. And these are organic things or entities which move about. There is progression. But they are all for man. And then the cattle are created. But now, in order to avoid redundancy of expression, the verb asai is used and the blessing is omitted in order that we may prepare the way for the creation of man himself. The creation of man is introduced by divine deliberation. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now there is nothing like that in the Babylonian creation account or the other creation account. In the Babylonian account, Marduk says, I will make man. And some commentators believe that the plural in Genesis is a deliberate rejection of the polytheistic statement of the Babylonian account. I do not think so. I think that this is intended to indicate that there is a plurality of persons in the speaker. It is not a plural of majesty. It is not God consulting his heavenly court, for in the work of creation and the work of salvation, God does not consult the heavenly court. Those are the works of God alone but it is an indication or an intimation that there is a plurality of persons in the speaker. It is the first adumbration of the doctrine of the Trinity that is found in the Bible. I think that is the explanation of the plural, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And this idea of image and likeness is unique to the Bible. God creates now in distinction from all that has preceded man in his image and in his likeness. And now the verb bara is used. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. There the uniqueness of man is set forth. Man is the crown of creation. Man is supreme over all that has gone before. All that has gone before has prepared the way for man to rule this earth. And then the blessing is pronounced upon man and God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. By the way, when the King James says replenish the earth, it simply means fill the earth. I think the old English word replenish simply meant fill, but some have taken that English word replenish and they have stressed the re part and drawn from that the conclusion that there was a pre-Adamic race no, that certainly is not an evidence for anything of that nature. The Hebrew word simply is fill the earth. And so the blessing is pronounced upon man and the earth is set before man and then the statement is made and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. 
you will notice then this progression step by step until man is created as the crown of creation. Notice also that each day is designated day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, and then the sixth day. With the sixth day alone, the definite article is employed. This is the unique day, the day of the crown of creation, the day upon which man comes from the hand of God, man in distinction from all that has gone before. Now, this brings up the question, what about evolution? And this is the point, of course, where men maintain there is a real conflict between Genesis and uh, evolutionary theory. Now, there are evolutionists and there are evolutionists. And uh, I want to avoid speaking simply in generalities, and yet I may have to do that to some extent. I'm going to define what I'm going to say. It seems to me it's the only way to get at this thing. We are constantly being told that it is a naive view to accept what is found in the first chapter of Genesis, that this presents the cosmogony of the ancient Hebrews, and we have seen that these things are no longer so. We have a more advanced concept of the origin of things than was maintained in those days. Well, is that really the case? Now, what do you mean by evolution? Genesis uses the term after its kind. And that word kind is a rather loose word. It is not to be equated with our English word species. It simply is used perhaps as we use the English word kind. It means that nothing reproduces anything that is contrary or essentially different from itself. A man, a human being, will always reproduce a human being. A cat will always reproduce a cat, a dog, a dog, and so on. Now, this does allow for mutations. There are mutations, as we well know, and yet they are not essentially different from the parent. And it allows for freaks and that sort of thing. But it excludes the idea that one particular plant, let us say, will produce something that is essentially different from itself. It reproduces according to its kind, and that word is used several times in the first chapter of Genesis. Now, there, there are those who say that the evidence for evolution is very strong, and there are those who bring up objections to the first chapter of Genesis, and they demand that we give an explanation. Why was there light before the sun? That is one of them. If the days are 24 hours in length, how do you account for the antiquity of man? That is another one. And there are many other objections that are raised. Let me say that no mere man can answer all questions to everybody's satisfaction concerning the first chapter of Genesis. It simply cannot be done, and it's foolish even to think that a person can do it. But you see, I don't like this idea of Christians always having to be on the defensive and more or less apologize for our beliefs as though they were something to be ashamed of. I think that evolution has brought its share of the difficulties, and I think it is time that the evolutionists really begin to give us some kind of an answer to some of these problems. And so I want to distinguish between what I call atheistic evolution and theistic evolution. Now, theistic evolution simply means that God used evolution as his method of creation. 
that God did change a a lower form of life into a human being. That is, that through God's work, the lower form of life became a human being. That is theistic evolution. Now, I do not believe it is possible to hold to the Bible and to theistic evolution at the same time. By stretching things, the best that you can do is hold that the body of the first man evolved out of a form of life that was lower than man. You cannot hold to the evolution of the body of woman and hold to the Bible at the same time for the simple reason that the Bible shows us how Eve was created. God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept and God took one from his ribs and from that rib he built the woman and brought her to the man to see what the man would call her. And the man immediately recognized that she stood in a unique relationship to himself as was not true of any of the animals. If you accept the Bible then, you cannot accept the evolution of the body of woman. The best you can do if you hold to the Bible is to hold that the body of the first man evolved from something lower than man. And I personally don't think you can even do that. I think you are stretching things to do that. Now, nobody wants to hold that. Evangelicals don't want to hold that at all. That isn't the question at issue. You, haven't, uh, you cannot say, well, I'm meeting up to the claims of science when you hold something like that. And I don't know of anybody that wants to hold that particular position. And so what are evangelicals doing now? Well, they are saying these early chapters of Genesis are poetry or they are myths, which means they're not to be taken as straightforward accounts. And if you do that, then there's no more difficulty. Uh, There's no difficulty either with the resurrection of Christ. If you say, well, the gospel writers don't mean to say that a miracle occurred, they're simply giving us a poetic account to show that Christ lives on and on. If you adopt that view, you don't have any trouble at all with modern science. You can get out of the difficulty very easily that way. The only thing is, by the way, if you do that, you're abandoning the Christian faith. And if you do that with Genesis, you're not facing up to the facts. I can't help but feel that that's a cowardly thing for evangelicals to do. Genesis is not poetry. Genesis 1. There are poetic accounts of creation, Psalm 104 and in Job, and they differ completely from the first chapter of Genesis. Hebrew poetry has certain characteristics, and they're not found in the first chapter of Genesis. That's no way out of the question. I think that the man who says, I believe that Genesis purports to be an historical account, and I don't believe that account, is a far better interpreter of the Bible than the man who says, I believe that Genesis is profoundly true, but it's poetry. That latter has nothing to commend it at all. I disagree with the first man, but he's a better exegete. He's a better interpreter because he's facing up to the facts. So evangelicals are not interested in holding to the evolution of the body of Adam, not at all. They want to hold to evolution as the unbeliever holds to it, and then they simply get out of the difficulty by saying Genesis is to be interpreted some other way. I don't think we can do that and be honest interpreters. Well, what kind of evolution do you have left? I'm going to call it atheistic evolution, and this is what I have in mind. The idea 
that an entity which is not a man has changed into a man. Now that is the fundamental point in evolution. That is the crux of the whole thing, that something that is not man became man. <coughs> and I would like to point out that, if you will just think about it, that change, if it occurred, and I, of course, don't believe it did, if that change occurred, it had to be instantaneous because an entity is either man or non-man. There is no missing link. The missing link is either a non-man or a man, which means that it isn't a missing link. The entity either must be a man, homo sapiens, or a non-man, and the change must have been instantaneous. Now, God could have caused that change to take place. But the Bible does not permit us to believe that. So these are the questions I would ask to the evolutionist who leaves God out of the picture, which is really what evolution does. What caused this non-man to become a man? Now, it doesn't help to put millions and billions of years in there and make it sound like the national debt. It just doesn't help anything. <laughs> because if you have all these millions of years of change right up to the point of being a man, as long as the entity is not a man, the gulf between them is tremendous. It's what caused that final change. That's the question. A man has body and soul, which means that he can think, and he can reason, he can plan, he can converse, and he has the ability to pray to God. He has religious capacity. And if something walks around on two legs and does not have that capacity, is not a man. And that's the question, where did all of that come from? Now, the atheistic evolution has no answer for that. It simply does not have an answer. And I think we have a right to demand an answer to that. And while we are at it, there's another problem involved here. People are always laughing at the second chapter of Genesis and the third chapter of Genesis and the fourth. Where did Cain get his wife? That is supposed to be an insolvable difficulty. Suppose evolution were true. How many non-men suddenly evolved into a man? Uh, if this evolution occurred, what are you going to do about the origin of the sexes? You pretty well have to have both a man and a woman, don't you? What caused the differentiation in the sexes? Now, I know that suggested explanations have been given, but they don't explain what caused that? Very fortunately, one non-man became a male, one non-man became a female, at least. And if two of these became men, they had children, and you can ask where those children got their wives, too, and you have the same problem. Or are you saying that at one time a lot of non-men became men? I imagine that's what they hold. If you hold that, 
why did just these non-men become men? There's the question. What about the rest of them? Well, you can say the survival of the fittest. They couldn't do it. They couldn't quite make it. All right, if they couldn't make it at that time, they've had plenty of time to survive and become fit since then. And there are a lot more fit animals walking around who are a lot more fit than human beings are. Why doesn't this evolution occur today? And if atheistic evolution is true, why can't we somehow evolve into something a little bit better than what we are? Not one of us is satisfied with what he is. Why did evolution stop? Why don't we change into something better? We're trying to do it all the time and we can't do it. And why is it that we, the crown of evolution, do things that the animals wouldn't do? I visited the prison camps of Dachau and Mauthausen. They're kept there as monuments today. And believe me, if you go through there, you're just sick to think that human beings could do the things that were done in those camps. Animals don't act that way. Animals may fight for their life, yes, but they don't do what men do. They don't plot and plan the devilish things that fallen man does. It isn't an evolution at all. And then you've got to go back to what is most fundamental of all. How did the whole thing get started? The primal cell. What on earth caused it? There is no real evidence for evolution, despite all that is being said. The evidence is not evidence for evolution. It is evidence of development. And that's all it is. There is no evidence to show that one entity ever has changed into something essentially different from itself. And I don't think we have to be ashamed of this. Because these are fundamental questions. And we have the right to expect the evolutionists to give us an answer to some of these things. And that fundamental one is where did the soul of man come from? Why is it that the highest and best animals are unable to pray, are unable to communicate in a rational way, are unable to do the things that man alone can do? The lowest man, the most primitive man upon the face of the earth, is far higher than the highest of animals because that lowest man has the capacity for worshiping God and can be brought to be a child of God who can live under the glory of God through Jesus Christ. And that is true of none of the animals. And I'm not ashamed to say that I believe in the first chapter of Genesis. I think I would be ashamed to say that I held to some form of evolution. We have difficulties. We have problems, and we can't answer them all. The evolutionist has these problems also, and I've only touched on some, of course. But I want you to think these things through. And when you're tempted to doubt the first chapter of Genesis, as though to believe it were something childish and naive, just remember that there are problems that stare the evolutionist in the face, and which he has not been able to answer, and he cannot answer them. And so we have in the first chapter of Genesis the wondrous statement of the fact of creation in which God is exalted as the creator. We see how step by step 
God brought the earth from its unfinished condition to the point where man could dwell upon it. And we see that man is the noblest work of God's creation, that all the world is before him. And there, my friends, is the challenge for us. There is meaning in our life. We are to go forth and live in this world to the glory of the Creator, to capture every realm of life for Christ, for it is his world. And in whatever talents God has given us, whatever way we can, to show that this is God's world and that we are his creatures and we are living erect upon this earth for God's glory. Thank you very much.